Thank you, Rachel. Hi, this is Toby Miller, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. As always, you can follow my adventures at tobymiller.org. And I'm here with my friend whom I was just thinking I've known now for going on for eight years. Really? Yeah. Thank you. And that, this is Rachel Weiss. Hello. Here comes her bagel, completely plastic knife. Rachel is uh, a, an artist, an intellectual, a historian, a theorist. Former artist. Former artist, yeah. Fair enough. And she works at the School of the Arts Institute of Chicago and lives in Indiana, nearby, Illinois. And she's here in LA. So, Rachel, as you spread the cream cheese on the toasted bagel, the first thing I have to ask you is what brings you to uh, you know, beautiful downtown Los Angeles? Um, the CAA Conference, College Art Association, which is um, something you come to if you have to, basically. <laughs> is it a meat market for jobs? It is, yeah, it is. And it's a market that doesn't exist, basically. So there's like hundreds of people competing for jobs that are um, underpaid, overworked, and less secure than ever. So it's when you started looking for academic jobs, which by the way she's not doing right now, <laughs> as far as I know. No. Were there lots of rather desolate looking, desperate looking, highly indebted recent PhDs lining up? Or what was it like? I don't know, because I wasn't actually looking for jobs. Um, I was approached by the school. So, um, so I've never actually been on the academic market, um, but my sense just from dealing with students over the years is that it's a lot scarier now than it used to be, um, and they owe huge amounts of money when they finish. So. so the College Art Association is mostly for art historians and art theorists who are academics, is that right, or is it something else? No, it's actually um, the big divide is between artists and art historians. Um, I think that probably the larger percentage in the historical um, foundation of CAA's artists, I think, like mm. MFA programs. In the United States, we have this thing, which some other countries have, called the MFA or Masters in Fine Arts, which is what we call a terminal degree here, i.e. if you're an artist and you want to teach art making in a tertiary institution, you need to have this. You don't need to have a doctorate. Is that right? Um, more or less. Mm. Some places are now starting PhD programs in studio. Mm. There's another big argument about whether that should exist or not, whether it's simply to feel like another market, or whether there's something intrinsic about art making that has changed, that is more research oriented, and that therefore justifies doing PhD. And in fact, Chicago is one of the cities where this is beginning to take hold in the US where discussions are going on about this. Uh, it's quite common to have a doctor in creative arts in Finland or Britain right. or Australia. Right. But they're, they're just beginning here. And I guess one other argument is, at least from my experience of working in, in an art school for 11 years, that in terms of getting promoted through the system, at least at the one that I was at, if you didn't have a PhD, even though most of the people in the school were in areas that didn't require them, it was not so difficult to get tenure because your film script or your music composition would be sufficient. But to get full professorship was almost impossible for these folks. Um, Particularly if they were in industries yeah. where you might have one big moment in your life, like those mathematicians who never have another idea after the right. age of 30. And they might be teaching very well and administering very well, but it was tough. And that was because not so much the people in the school itself, but people in the wider university, this was at New York University, couldn't see what these people had achieved in terms of cultural production. So one of my thoughts is that there might be value in a doctorate in creative arts or something like that, where people can reflect on their artwork and then continue to reflect on these things as time goes by, including on, say, when they write a film script or whatever it is that doesn't get produced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, there's two questions. One is, um, 
your work and the other is your credential. And, as, educate, as higher education becomes more and more a question of credentialing rather than education, um, there are more and more justifications for making more degrees and more expensive degrees. I mean, this I teach in a department called Arts Administration and Policy, and there has been um, in an art school where basically nobody in the school understands what we do. But our problems are a lot milder than other programs that are in universities because there it's seen as being like um, not a real discipline and um, like not not fully an MBA. It's some um, softer version of it, and it's not social science, and it's not artistic practice, and so it just doesn't really fit anywhere. And it's not the humanities either. Right. It's none of these things, is it? So there, people have. Um, I should say this is the only department I've visited at any university in the United States where I've actually felt at home <laughs> as soon as I arrived right. and met my colleagues there. <laughs> and that's why I went there, basically. Because mm -hmm. um, I had never worked for, I never really worked for an institution before in any full hmm. sense. But yeah, it's an art school, it's a very. Uh, in, uh, yeah, it has like progressive commitments about art. And that's a big thing. Now, in terms of being at the CAA, you're actually here, I think I'm right in saying, because you're on an editorial board? For Art Journal, yeah. Art Journal. Which um, everybody should read because it's really a good publication. Um, about 50% of listeners are outside the US, so if you can give a, a bit more con con context slash content. I mean, I know Art Journal is read massively, but maybe yeah. some listeners outside the, the field. It's, um, so CIA has two journals, one's called Art Bulletin, and that is um, everything but contemporary, basically, um, and then Art Journal is, is more focused on contemporary art. But it's a mixture of um, artists and scholars, um, people from other disciplines, all, so it deals more broadly with um, art in the context of culture rather than art as like studio production, things like that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, well we just had, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, we had a conversation yesterday about forthcoming issues, which I probably can't say what the themes are. Sure, but, sure. Um, they sound interesting. But they're, it's very, yeah. There's a new, we're in the transitional period between current editor and the next editor. Mm -hmm. And one of the nice things about it actually is that since the editor changes every three years, I think, um, and the board also rotates a lot, the vision of um, what's in it is always getting refreshed. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Now, I. Um, described you as an artist earlier and I realize that's not something you practice now as you explained something you are doing now is publishing up the wazoo oh, <laughs> and I wonder if what we might do is chat about the two books you have out at the mm -hmm. moment um, how they came to be and so on and then we might talk about some of the issues surrounding them and then track back a bit mm -hmm. and uh, sure. there are these two volumes uh, that have come out. One is with, am I right in saying MIT Press? Minnesota. I'm sorry, University of Minnesota Press. Uh, and the other is not with a conventional scholarly house. So why don't we start with the University of Minnesota Press one, which is on a, a topic uh, about which Rachel's been an expert and has done a great deal of research over a long time. Uh, very long time, since 85, so it's like Five years or um, it's called To and From Utopia in the New Cuban Arts. And um, so I started by chance meetings. I got involved in Cuban art um, in the mid 80s. And, and it's kind of a long story, but the basic point was that I love the work. And I love the, the like, dialogue around it. It was this incredibly sort of open moment. And 
people my age producing work that was that was linked in, in ways that were just extraordinary to um, what was going on in Cuban society and, and just more generally questions that were like pretty more than in the U.S. about art and politics and art and society that you know, stuff that was at a pretty doctrinaire level among the people who I was working with in the U.S. in Cuba was this very organic conversation. It was more open. Yeah. Can we just focus for a moment on the U.S. part of that? Because it interests me what you just said about how amongst the people that you knew, that you were working with, it was a doctrinaire point. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, the 80s, so the 80s were the period of the Central American Wars and the U.S. Uh, intervention. And so there was this very kind of pamphleteering movement against that. It was a very, to me, I felt like it was a very schematic idea of politics. And it was a very um, naive understanding of positionality, of like what, what our commitments from here are to the just all that kind of stuff. It mm -hmm. just felt wrong for me. And Cuba was, this is a, a, a nice paradox, less dogmatic mm -hmm. in the art world. Yeah, it was a very particular moment, and it had to do with artists, not with policy or organs. Mm -hmm. um, although there were sympathetic administrators. And this was also sort of when I started thinking more, um, more systematically about How, how the arts, I mean, administered is a terrible word, but how the arts were organized and circulated and how they intersect with legal bodies and publics and all that kind of stuff. So we've got in a different way about all that. Right, so a little bit off to one side from the way a lot of artists talk about art and the way that a lot of art historians and art theorists talk about art. Um, although they often know those things very well particularly right. artists, but the work is what matters so much in, in many cases to these folks, mm -hmm. but you're interested in what one might call the distributional poetics of these oh, objects right. and practices, um, where the textuality, the content, the meaning is as important as it is to artists and conventional critics, but so are the questions of how these right. practices and objects move about. Yeah? Well, yeah, I mean... And come to be. The, um, I went to grad school in like 1980, I guess. Um, Where was that? Massachusetts College of Art. Mm -hmm. And the first work that I encountered there was conceptualism, mm -hmm. and um, which is more than a category of art making, uh, more a process of thinking about the art object in its contents, mm -hmm. the artwork. And so I was like, that was how I was predisposed to think about my own work as an artist. And then I got less interested in being an artist and more interested in, in the interchange. So, um, so I started making art. And you were making ceramics, right? I, initially, yes. I was a production potter. Um, and studied in a this is so long ago. Um, <laughs> studied in um, the Japanese tradition of one of the five or seven ancient kilns, I can't remember which. Um, and at a certain point, I realized that I was not Japanese, and that you know, this whole kind of ethic and aesthetic um, was something I appreciated a lot. But it, like at some basic level, I was doing somebody else's work. <laughs> Rachel, not that common a name in Tokyo. Probably not, yeah. <laughs> no, but not on every street corner. That's interesting. So you felt as though you wanted to be more involved, if you were making art, in things that connected to your own cultural background? Well, yeah, I mean, also, so I grew up during the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, all of that, and so there was no, um, there was no distance between my own biography and the major political 
which is uh, yes. Right. So you know, it was just I what eventually these were all sort of attempts to find a way to participate culturally and creatively yeah. without being like in an autistic universe. That was like the formative context. Yeah. And what drew you to Cuba in the first place? Was this movement away from the doctrinaire nature of U.S. progressive art? I mean, I happened to. um, I was running the visiting artist program at Mass Art, and through like a friend's um, friend whose kid was in daycare with the granddaughter of someone else who knew that there was a guy um, from Havana in New York giving slideshows, and so we brought him to the school, and, and the work that he showed was just like, terrific, and the way he talked about it was very exciting, and we became friends right away, and um, sent him this incredibly naive letter addressed to like, the Ministry of Culture, Havana, Cuba. Um, <laughs> saying we're so excited about what's going on there we'd like to keep in touch and months later we got a letter back <coughs> saying great why don't you come down and we'll talk about doing an exchange program so uh, so it just started this process so, uh, what was it about the art slides on the talk that really jazzed you I'm not sure I remember particular works I think it was, um, I mean, not to be too kind of sentimental about it, but um, the sense I had was that, <clears throat> so these are people who are working completely outside of a market context because there was no market economy at the time. So there was, there was like, um, Instead of proceeding from an idea of art, it was proceeding from an idea of inquiry about uh, the world. And that was like somehow very clear work and in how this guy had already talked about it. And um, that felt like an incredible, like, you know, there was a huge sense of possibility around it. I love that way of putting it, a sense of inquiry into the world. Yeah. And also a sense of responsibility for it, rather than for just your own production. Yeah. yeah. So it was very magnetic. Um, and once you start into conversations with peers who are really into what they're doing, then that can go on forever and take you off into places. Yeah, yeah. So did the college and the ministry, in fact, establish an exchange program? We did, yeah. We had one um, that ran for, I think, about four or five years. Um, with two students going back and forth. It got really complicated because um, the last round of it was right around, I think it was actually in 1989. Um, and so what, the first part of it that was kind of extraordinary was that the two artists who came from Havana um, landed in the midst of the culture wars here, which was like completely shocking to them. Because um, more or less the same thing was happening in Cuba at the time. They were like, really? It's completely parallel here. Um, but then also it was um, Cuba um, went into a pretty precipitous recall in 89 after Berlin Wall and, and the end of subsidies and the end of preferential trade relations with And there had been lots of tension developing between this group of artists. And not so much the Ministry of Culture as with the Communist um, Party. Because their work was like quite hostile in many cases, um, and so there was this whole complicated thing that happened that um, their emigration was facilitated, basically. Um, I get the fuck out of this. Well, I mean, there were, like I said, there were um, some people in the 
ministry who were quite sympathetic, who were you know, now describe what they were doing as protective. And I think that's probably right. sincere. But other officials but, who yeah, didn't take that view. So where did these artists go and how many were there, would you say? Um, over, the, over the course of probably three years, pretty much the entire generation left. It was like a hundred plus artists and lots of people in literature. It's a lost generation. Yeah. And did, an did orphan they, generation afterwards. And an orphan generation afterwards, absolutely. So where did they go? Did they go to other parts of Latin America or did they come here? So there was, um, at the time, relations between Cuba and Mexico were very particular and very kind of easy for them to go to Mexico. And a lot of them wound up moving to Calle Cuba, which was a nice little touch um, <laughs> in downtown. Um, and then the, the U.S., some, I never like understood exactly what the policy lines were, but somehow the U.S. decided that it wanted to pressure the Mexican government to pressure the Cubans because it was very, they were able to be in what was called low-intensity exile at the time. Oh, known as LIE. Right, great, long so most of them actually had to um, then make the much sharper choice of Miami or not Miami, because Miami at that point was still like a very, um, yeah, it was a hard choice. Um, but a lot of them wound up in Miami, Miami's pulled out quite a bit since But it, you know, it's a diaspora, there are people in um, Almost like what happens with the Spanish during the Civil War in the 30s, yeah, yeah, yeah. where people just are either killed or they flee. And a lot went to Mexico, of course, and yeah. so on. But yeah, very interesting. I must admit, I didn't know that. So many gaps in my knowledge, not so good on thermonuclear dynamics and cold fusion, and not so good on the Cuban art diaspora, which I should know about. Wow. So, so that generation's lost, and, and in the middle of all of this, I know we're jumping around it, but let's let's stay with this chronology because it's interesting. Your first book comes out, right? Isn't this? When did your first book come out? It's not actually my first book, but it's the first of these two. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, you're forgetting about the two that have come out very recently. I mean, your first book. Well, depends on how you count it. Um, well, let's think about, you know, the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> Not to decry the importance of cultural relativism. The first book I published was... Um, were there, like, there have been a bunch of exhibition catalogs, yeah. and there's right. some anthologies and whatever, so... I guess the first one was probably... an anthology that was the collected papers from a big festival I'd run actually at Mass Art called um, Being America. Being America. Yeah. I don't remember what year that would have come out. So at some point in the late 80s. Yeah. And when does the Cuban material start appearing? Well, so then this guy in the garden was and I organized a show together which toured around the U.S. That was called the nearest edge of the world. The nearest edge of the world. Wow, what a yeah. fabulous title! My which, God, it's got my the hair standing up on my elbows where normally there isn't a lot of hair. It's interesting because I got like seriously called to task by the vice minister over that title. He was completely pissed. He said, "We're not an edge of the world." And also, <laughs> we believe in the science science of Marxism and the world is round. <laughs> From my perspective, what it meant was that, um, that, for all intents and purposes, in the American imaginary, Cuba was off the map, was like off the edge of the map. It was um, like those old medieval maps where, you know, dragons like here, and just like, it's known only by misinformation, and that was why we were interested in touring the show in the U.S. But it was a complicated moment, this was like right around, I think it was 1990 that the show finally opened. So Cuba was in total crisis. Yeah. Artists were in the midst of leaving, and the ministry, and 
most of the sympathetic figures in the Ministry of Culture have been purged because of their sympathy. And so the checklist of the show was, you know, an active dispute because there were works that they didn't want to export. And then the title topped it all off. Yeah. But then, I mean, the, uh, um, this is strictly so, between us and the pod. Right. I got, don't say anything you don't want to say. No, I'm just thinking about, <laughs> like, if it's still sensitive, and that probably isn't because none of these people are still in the um, But so I, I get summoned to Havana um, after when the show opens, just they're so mad. Um, and between the time I get summoned and the time I arrive, a review comes out in the New York Times saying, who knew, you know, this work is great. So I show up in the vice minister's office and he's got the review. <laughs> and he's like, we're going to upgrade your hotel. Um, yes, there's a great old saying in Cuba, a bit like a, the Derridean notion of being outside the text. If there's no outside the text, there's no outside the revolution. You were well and truly inside the revolution at that point with an upgrade. <laughs> you, you expected you'd be sort of whipped or something. It was actually the first time that I had gone that I had made my presence known to the American diplomatic representation. And I just wanted them to know that I was really? there. So in all seriousness, yeah, this was a matter of concern given the relations. Yes, for people outside the U.S., the United States doesn't have an embassy in Cuba, but it has an American interests section. Right. Which is technically part of the Swiss embassy, and in reverse um, in the U.S. And the interesting thing about it is that there are certain areas where businesses actually literally hold trade fairs with Cuba, but only in particular sectors of the economy. It's quite right. strange. But in any event... And I really don't know much about that at all. And the other thing is, knowing about it is knowing about it yesterday or, t or today, because it changes every bloody hour, it seems, depending on the, the focus of the administration, the way elections are, the point that elections are out in a cycle, how important Florida is, mm -hmm. the state where Miami is located, where a lot of expatriate Cubans live. All these factors run, run into play, into finding out exactly what our representation there does. And so, when I say I know this, it means that I knew it three weeks ago. Right. But it might not be true tomorrow. Yep. I mean, the, the inconsistency and irrationality of US policy towards Cuba, and vice versa, but certainly from our perspective, has gotten worse and worse, I would say, in the last 20 years. Yes and no. I mean, Obama actually made a significant change um, a year ago, more or less. Right, right. Um, in loosening travel regulations and also restrictions on family remittances, which is huge in terms of no, no, point taken about, about the Obama people, they've been good on that, bad on lots of other things, but they have been good on that. But I'm thinking about, you know, the toing and froing of control of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee between the Republicans and the Democrats, and when the Republicans get hold of it, they're maniacs about Cuba, you know what I mean? So anyway, enough of that. Uh, so what looked like it might be a disaster, personally and otherwise, becomes a triumph. Because you get the upgrade. <laughs> yeah. So, the, no, the show was incredibly well received. People were really um, excited about it. Um, and it toured, it was supposed to tour for, I think, a year, and it wound up being four or five years. I mean, it really, um, it hit some kind of nerve. Um, and is it, was it mostly hung art? Was it, it was um, installations. Um, some painting, like large scale, kind of, um, some photography. It was eclectic. It was, I think it was like 11 artists. Um, it was a great show. I mean, it was really wonderful work. In the course of its tour, I think all but one or two of the artists left dying. Um, so there were complicated issues about ownership of the work because. In a socialist country, the idea is that all, produ all production belongs to the state. And this was all work that had been produced in Cuba. Right. But once the artists um, 
member of the artist when they requested asylum elsewhere. Um, also, claimed ownership of their work. So it was a sort of intensive education in, um, in cultural property and cultural politics. Oh my god, did you have to have international law people involved to advise? That's really complicated, because you're, in a sense, holding it in trust for the Cuban government, but then the artists leave Cuba and say, I want my, my work. That I made, yeah. That I made, and that has my name on it. Good grief. Anyhow, I mean, the, the sort of short version of this shaggy dog story... No, it's not a shaggy dog story at all. It's incredibly interesting. So in the 90s, what happens is um, this whole generation is gone. There's right. you know, the art school, which, by the way, was one of the best art schools in the world. Right. Um, still has... Can I get some Just want to get a chance. Sure. I got it. It's still producing young artists. Um, the Ministry of Culture becomes newly strategic in an effort to build a new economy based on tourism, cultural products, um, biotechnology, whatever. Um, and they've started the Havana Biennial. You know, they, they like need to uh, they need to continue producing artists for this like, incipient market. Yeah. Um, Thank you very much. And um, but there's like new cynicism on everyone's part. Like young artists growing up with no mentors um, and a society that is like newly savage um, based on literal survival yeah. and meanwhile there is a market for the work that has started in the last couple of years it's been this guy Peter Ludwig the collector in Germany um, had bought a show um, and there were starting to be curators and collectors who would come to so there's a different sense. The idea of art begins to change a lot, um, and also the the idea of art as like a meaningful protagonist seems not to have worked out. Um, so there's skepticism about that. So in other words, on the one hand there is marketization, and on the other there is crackdown and the loss of talent. Yeah, so both these then, things flatten out, flat tend to flatten out. Exciting socially oriented art movements. Mm -hmm. But then, like, Crackdown turns into new, new kind of... Um, I mean, there's now a mutual zone of um, converging interests between artists and institutions that has to do with selling work. That is absolutely fascinating. And somewhere in all of this, just to cut across into you again, because you're, you're very good at moving away from your own achievements in this creature, if I may say so. I told you it would be Larry King's softball, but every now and then, I have my Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein cap on. But to be serious, somewhere in all of this, you have a, the UNAM event project book, right? Right. Uh, which is this... Uh, the National Autonomous University of Mexico, which is maybe along with the University of Buenos Aires, the biggest university maybe in the world. It's got conceivably 350,000 people uh, studying, thousands of faculty, two volcanoes, beat that, mm -hmm. ecological <laughs> garden, they call it, I call it a fucking forest. Anyway, an amazing place, as you yeah. say, its own city. So, uh, and you're involved in roughly what time period of it? I was trying to remember. I guess it would have all been around the same period of time, like maybe the very end of the 80s. Um, so the project is um, this book called um, For America, which is the name of a work by the artist Juan Francisco Elsa, and, which is an effigy of Jose Marti. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Jose Marti is a, an inspirational figure in 19th, 20th century, still 21st century, nation-building in Latin America as historian, theorist, literateur, activist, you name it, right? I mean, still, and I don't know what the collective Marti would look like, but it's volume, volume, volume. Plus, oh, of, yes, plus yes. of course, the United States propaganda machine against the Cuba regime includes TV Marti and Radio Marti, 
where it appropriates his name for its radio and TV signals against the regime. No, actually, you know, the big um, Marquis Monument in Revolution Plaza um, was built by Batista. Um, who was the, the U.S. Uh, lackey, some would say, who was the ruler of Cuba before the revolution. Right. I think in 53 he built it. And there, do you, have you been there? You know? No, I think oh, okay. there, it's this gigantic monument, this white monument, um, with this huge like tower, which is apparently modeled on this Smirnoff um, gin bottle or something like that. Um, and then this gigantic statue of Marti. But anyhow, um, so yeah, everyone claims Marti. Um, yeah. And, but so um, this guy Elsa was um, really, really amazing. Um, he had died very young, I think he was 32, um, and his wife was Magali Lara, who you know, domestic. And who's been on this podcast. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, 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 you should listen to that one, it's a, yeah. it's a ripper. Oh, cool. So Magali, um, after he died, she wanted, he was like hardly known. Um, and he was an extraordinary creator. And she decided that she really wanted for there to be some kind of project that would like um, make his work visible. So she approached me, um, which was a huge honor, and asked me if I'd be willing to put a book together about it. Yes, I should say that people like Rachel and me are honored that we've met people like my dad. <laughs> it was a re- but to be invited by her to do something like this, it's really big deal yeah, for us. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I started, um, she and I did this road trip through um, Oaxaca, retracing a trip that she and Elsa had made. And Oaxaca is in the southern part of Mexico, and it's really like a different country in many yeah. ways from other bits of Mexico. Lots of, lots of indigenous people rather than mestizos, lots of other languages other than, apart from Spanish. Yeah. Just to give yeah. some context yes. to... No, you're good at this, huh? <laughs> So, and then, um, you know, I, I spent a huge amount of time talking to people who had been in his life, and just looking also at, not so much at the work, most of which didn't exist anymore, but at documentation of it, um, and at whatever there was left of it, because he produced very little, actually. Um, and then thinking about... Um, how, just how to structure the book, I decided... Yeah. We're doing well, just checking. I decided it would be great to get different perspectives, so I commissioned a bunch of essays um, from Mosquera, who was sort of the principal spokesperson for that whole period of Cuban art, from Luis Kamnitzer, because um, he approaches all of this. He's a somewhat older generation. He was born in the 30s. Um, and so, like, the formulaic moment for him is 1956, in, or 54, in Guatemala. 54, yeah. when the, or 53 or 54, when the, the CIA deposes a, an elected right. social democrat government. Whereas, you know, point of reference for um, Mosqueda is 59 or 68, you know, it's just like a different political yeah. age. Um, and I knew that Luis would, would like, look at Elsa's work in terms of its resonance against the revolution. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and an amazing writer in Havana named Orlando Hernandez, who um, did a very beautiful essay about um, about the Marti that, that Elsa made. Um, just like really trying to understand what it meant to invoke all of that all those years later and after all the sort of Stolen victories of the revolution, and, um, and then Cuatema Sabina, who I'm sure you know, mm-hmm. who wrote also a very extraordinary essay about the last work that Elsa did, which was unfinished, which was called, um, what was it called? I, know, I think it was called The Transparency of God. It was a trilogy of works. One was the Heart of America, one was the Face of God, and one was the 
part, oh, the hand, the grating hand. These are all like large scale. Oh, okay. um, sculptural forms made by tiny twigs together. Basically, like very, very intricate, um, like Arte Calvera sensibility, but very And then um, Lopez Austin, who had seen, there was a posthumous show of that work, of that trilogy, that Kaltemov did at the Koryukyu Museum. Lopez Austin, who is like a, he works, works on primarily not Rockland, I think. Uh -huh. um, he had seen that show and had been really moved by it, so we asked him to just like, Meditate right, on it. The Nahuatl is one of the important indigenous languages in the region that actually has means of speakers and its own literature and so on. Yeah. So, um, and there was quite a controversy over that book, wasn't there? Yeah. I don't know how much of that I really want to talk about. Um, but it was a very raw subject. Um, his death was uh, really hard for his close friends. He left. He had moved to Mexico to marry Magali in like maybe '87. I can't remember now. And he, next to dissimilar to Marquis, was kind of claimed by a lot of different tenants. So it was just it was a real raw spot. Raw spot. Now we've got about 20 minutes left, so in that time, what I'd love to do, if we can, and I know you've also got to polish off your breakfast, this is always the problem for my interlocutors. I say, you know, breezily, let's meet here, let's meet there, and then of course their food gets cold. Mm -hmm. I'd love to ask and move on to the, jumping ahead a bit, uh, these latter two books that you've done that have really just come out. Um, so let's get to that Minnesota one, which is... Uh, a splendidly produced gorgeous volume, yeah. Yeah. I must say, and I think I can remember a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, three or four years ago maybe, your discussions with publishers about the reproduction of imagery. Yeah, yeah, it was tricky. But so the book, um, so basically in the 90s, there's this very changed climate, everyone's becoming very disillusioned, um, angry. Um, including me, I, mean, I felt like um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue this commitment I had made to uh, these people, well, to the people who are now in Miami, um, just to follow in the process in Cuba. I stopped going for a couple of years, and then I decided I had my first sabbatical, like the first time in my life that I had time off to do whatever I wanted. Um, in 2001, and I decided that I was going to make a decision that I was going to go back to Cuba and um, look carefully and think hard and decide what I wanted to do. Um, so I did just spend a few months talking to everyone I could and decided to write the book. Um, and at first, you know, my model was that the 80s were, that it was kind of this, you know, this the 80s were this line going up, and then the 90s were defeat and collapse. So it's just like that. What I realized when I started thinking about it was that really um, the whole point for me was about that process of learning to live with disappointment, like how does we do? So it was a way to think that through. Right? How interesting. So your, the book is, a, in a sense, the affirmation of your decision that when things get difficult or demoralizing in terms of a commitment, instead of either continuing the commitment or ending it, you allow yourself to sense and theorize and analyze the disappointment. Yeah. And Feel it, I guess. Also. Yeah, so I'm a man. I don't have feelings. God, <laughs> didn't anybody? Didn't you get them? Yeah. Memo, telegram, tweet. But this is so. Um, 
most of the feedback I've gotten about the book um, has to do with the language in it. It's very, um, um, it's not an academic text at all. It's like really, and Orlando, Orlando and I, uh, for years had, while we were both working on books, we had this ongoing um, conversation harassing each other about whether we had made any progress or not. <laughs> And every time I'd see him, I'd say, okay, so now I've figured out the structure, and here's what it is. And he'd say, no, that's bullshit. That's not, oh, that's helping you. Until you figure out the voice, you won't understand um, anything. Um, and then I'd show up a few months later and say, okay, I figured out the structure. So, like, he was right. And eventually I figured out, like, who I was in the process and what I was trying to get out of it. And then it was very easy to write it. This is a great lesson for many of us, thinking about this question of structure and voice when writing. I think, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think that's a terrific story to tell. And especially when you're dealing with something where you have massive expertise, where you know a lot, but the question is how to arrange your thoughts and how to voice them. Very, very interesting. So it comes out last year, 2011 with University of Minnesota Press. Uh, it's a tour d'horizon, um, and as we said, splendidly illustrated. I mean, they really did the right thing. The press, um, when they saw the images, um, they were so excited about it that they decided, I didn't pressure them at all, because I had the, this totally colonized idea of, of you know, what my leverage was. I thought, oh, you're publishing my book, great, you know. Thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you. <laughs> But they saw the work, and they were so excited by it that they, they decided that they were going to um, publish it before Hella, which they always never do. And that's one reason I took longer to that, because it's more expensive. I think that's why I asked you, I assumed it was MIT Press, because they're well known right. for doing the full-color deal, by contrast, with Minnesota. But the amount of it is astonishing, too. It's like 170 too. images or something. It's yeah. quite astounding. I spent an entire summer getting photo permissions, which was not my favorite summer. Oh. Yeah, because... Um, you academics are so lucky you don't have to work in the summer. By the way, in the United States, you don't get paid for the summer. <laughs> Just in case people were wondering. We are, most of us, employed for nine months of the year. Just fantastic. So, University of Minnesota Press, 2011, grab it. We've got one more book to talk about, then I wanted very briefly if you could talk a little bit about some of that activism you're doing. Gary, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. I'm sorry, <laughs> I know you don't want to hear that, but it's a fantastic song from what the music, music Man. The Music Man. Yeah. Uh, plus, of course, there's a very, very clever, interesting gay novelist and critic called Gary, Indiana. Right. Right. He, he writes was... in the village voice, or used to. Anyway. Yeah, in like the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. God, okay. <laughs> so out of date. So, let's get on to the second book, which is definitely causing a bit of a ruckus. I mean, by ruckus, I, I don't mean that pejoratively. Uh, you were mentioning to me yesterday when we chatted that you've been giving a bit of a book tour about yeah. this. So, what, what is it? So, this is um, the British Journal After All. Um, it's been in the book business for a few years. They had this series they've been running called One Word, which is a series of monographs about individual artwork, and then they decided to do um, a parallel series of books about exhibitions, because um, there's this whole you know, nascent um, scholarship about um, exhibitions themselves, which which have not really figured in um, art historical studies, so it's kind of just missing piece, because if you don't talk about how art is presented, then you're talking about it in a strange kind of vacuum. So it's an interesting line of thinking. And they decided to um, select exhibitions that are much less known um, and to kind of narrate and alternate history exhibitions. Um, Instead of thinking about blockbuster shows or right. things that were obviously influential. Yeah. So um, they were actually. So the way I got involved in this was because of global conceptualism. I forgot that part. Um, which was that show that we did at Queen's Museum in like 2000. Um, that 
was this polemic about the conceptualization of art in different parts of the world um, in post-war periods. Um, and because of that show, I was invited to this, um, to like the launch conference for the After Art Exhibition Series um, in Vienna, where they were talking about early conceptual exhibitions and what it meant to like museumize anti-institutional work that. And in the course of that conversation, they decided they wanted to do a volume of a series about the Havana Biennial because it was a super important project and nobody really knows about it. There's, there has not been any like um, long-form treatment ever. So they commissioned me to write the, the central essay. It's a cool series. They're doing... Um, uh, the template is sort of, there's a main essay and then they reproduce a lot of primary documents from the time. So we republished um, papers that were delivered at the Biennial Conference in 89 by Mirko Lauer, who's from Lima, super interesting guy, um, and Gita Kapoor. Um, I mean, the conference was like, who's who from all over the global south? Amazing, fabulous, um, and you know, in that particular moment, the conversation about decolonization, about how postmodernism fits in an underdeveloped context, all of those were really important questions. Um, so that's what those papers are trying to get their heads around. So it's, it, for me, it was really interesting to just time travel, go back to '89, and like hear that language again. So, so that's what the book is, um, and there are a couple of reviews um, from 89 that we also reproduced, and, and some interviews that I did with um, a couple of artists who participated, one from Havana, and one from a couple of guys from Lima who worked as a collector, just about their experience. Again, from you know, how I like to work, is to like triangulate between different perspectives, Figure out how they resonate Wow, sounds like Eisenstein's theory of montage. God, that was slightly pretentious on my part. Uh, and I can hear an interesting connection to, between the two books in that they both have this element of disappointment or not failure, but a kind of termite level, uh, which is to say, as, as opposed to, you know, Land of the Pharaohs, Ming uh -huh. oh, so <laughs> you know, the super show. Uh, what, you know, Manny Faber, the artist and, and yeah, yeah. filmmaker and film critic, had this expression, termite criticism, to describe what he did. If you, if you haven't ever gotten a chance to do it, in addition to looking at those wonderful paintings and crazy stuff that he did in the last 30 years of his life, there's a book that's come out a couple of times in different editions, which is a collection of his criticism when he wrote for whatever it was, I forget, in the 60s and early 70s. I think it was Art Forum. I think it was Art Forum. And he called it termite criticism and he explained it. It's really fun. But it's a bit like a, a rhizomatic Deleuzean Guattarian thing. In other words, you're not. The connection I hear that I or sense is. Uh, oh, right, if you must. I guess Fidel and I have had our feelings in our day. Not often the same ones, but still. He was better at baseball than I could ever be. But uh, you're interested in things that are somewhat marginal or have not become utterly central to conventional art discourse, but you're also interested in uh, what happens when things can suddenly emerge into that centrality. Mm -hmm. So that's why I see a certain... Yeah. I think continuum. it's because I grew up in New Jersey. And I was, so I, I, like being a New Yorker was stolen from me at birth. I've always been displaced. Rachel has just confessed to being a JG. Yeah, Jersey girl. So we've got five minutes to talk about being a Gary girl. Mm -hmm. uh, and again yesterday when we met, which wasn't a rehearsal by the way, it was breakfast, you mentioned some very interesting developments in Gary that you're involved with. And I wondered if you could close us out by... Sure. Telling us a bit more about that. So I moved to um, to 
a neighborhood of Gary. It's called Miller, actually. Miller. Yeah. Um, Miller Beach. Um, Miller Beach, Indiana. Yeah. Well-known coastal state. Well, it's on the shore of um, Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan, yes. And in case people don't know, Lake Michigan is gigantic, and the beaches that that abut it actually do feel quite like beaches. You know, you get waves, and you can swim for at least half an hour a year in terms of the water temperature. (laughs) (laughs) I don't actually go into the water, but um, I went in Lake Michigan in August. I thought I would never come out. (laughs) Anyway. Um, so I moved there three years ago, and I was sick of living in Chicago, but I wanted to, um, you know, live some reasonable distance. The suburbs of Chicago are, are like, godforsaken. Yeah. Um, it's just horrible. And then I heard, hey, Frank, it's, um, Frank, Toby. Hello, Toby. Toby, nice to meet you. How are you? Um, how are you? Yeah, how are you? Welcome. Um, we're just finishing up. Okay. We'll be done in four minutes and six seconds. Okay. Um, it's this anomalous little corner of the world that is this um, beautiful mid-century, um, parts of it semi-rural, parts of it more suburban, but with a long history of um, diversity and progressive politics and. So, and it felt great to be there, so I moved back. And by um, the way, she had a fantastic apartment in Chicago. So, yeah. this Gary, Indiana's, and especially this Miller Beach place, has got to be something else. It's really terrific. So, anyhow, um, I have been getting involved. Um, among other things, it's like a real neighborhood. Like we all know each other. And, um, Gary is one of those like super hard left places that fell apart at the end of the sixties. Um, it was Gary was built for literally for the steel mills. Um, and when the mills started going under, and, um, so the population went from I think it used to be like two hundred thousand. I think it's now about eighty thousand. So. Um, I, there was a group that was starting um, to put together um, what they were calling an arts and creative district on what used to be the um, main drag of Miller. Um, and I got involved with them and we did, um, we started last summer, we did pop-up gallery nights. Um, Love it. Which, and I should preface all this by saying that um, thanks to um, Ideas that you and George Unicey developed many years ago. Um, I have been thinking and reading a lot about um, the ubiquitous cultural turn towards um, urban redevelopment. Mm-hmm. And, um, very, very skeptical about it and, and deal with it a lot in classes and all that. It was the first time I'm actually dealing with the um, urban redevelopment project in Gary, Indiana, um, with people who know nothing about art, but who are really convinced that um, the arts are um, the viable future economy mm-hmm. for the city. And it's just super interesting to, I mean, so my role there is, is as a neighbor who knows something about art, not, <laughs> not as like this person from Chicago who works in the museum. And it's just very, I like that position a lot. Um, Absolutely fantastic. Can you just, just very quickly, what a pop-up gallery is? Because th- this is part of a wider phenomenon that's been very significant in the United States at least, I would say since the recession began, yeah, yeah. most spectacularly. It's, um, this main street, which is called Lake Street, um, used to have all kinds of businesses, all, almost all of which have um, closed. So it's lots of empty real estate. So we just like open these spaces up for one night, and um, lots of artists come and make their work. And it's it's basically unjuried. It's it's mm-hmm. more a neighborhood event than anything else. But the amazing thing is that we had like hundreds and hundreds of people on the street. Um, people who lived in for generations say that there's not been anything like that since the early 60s. So it's kind of fabulous. And, but um, I should say much more organic than a lot of the creative industries, yeah, yeah. renewal ideas that you were mentioning earlier you're skeptical of. This yeah. is much more grassroots than it people really flying in 
and announcing here's the blueprint for your right. city to recover from deindustrialization, isn't it? Yeah, and the committee is this um, very eclectic bunch of like people who are long-time sort of political figures in Gary and people like me who are total newcomers um, and you know someone who works in marketing and it's just this strange collection of people who are all trying to make this happen um, and it's growing in the other direction so now the, the new um, city administration has gotten interested because there's this activity in the neighborhood and, and that's beginning to create possibilities for support so we'll see what happens but it's been pretty cool that's exciting and I hope that you or others associated decide to record some of this because we need some cases of where it isn't about bureaucrats, burgers, and bullshit merchants from universities doing this. Instead, it's about you know community agents and activists and artists and art lovers deciding to make something happen, and then they can bring in the burgers. Right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you here. I really appreciate it. And I hope that you'll come back to the pod and report in on what it's like being a Gary girl next time we're in the same town. <laughs> that was great. Thanks. Thank you.